0: Good morning again. The scripture reading this morning is from Romans 6 and 7, and I'm going to read through a selection of that. So, as I just skip through verses, I'll cue you as to what verse I'm reading. We're going to start in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. Verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin, and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we're skipping to chapter 7, verse 4. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what was once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Verse 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
1: Meg was modeling a way of studying the scriptures which is to compare translations. If you were wondering the difference she I believe was reading from the NIV, you got to see the ESV and you see some of the differences. Every translation committee of the Bible is responsible and good and knows their text. We mostly use the ESV here but there are other good versions of the Bible. We're going through the most important letter ever written, in my opinion, the book of Romans. Paul's letter to the one church that he has not visited. It's part of a series that we've been doing the last three autumns about the three offices of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. When the Bible says prophet, it predominantly is telling us um, that Jesus is the truth teller. Jesus also is the office of priest. And we do not need another. We explored the book of Hebrews, which displays that to us. The year before that, we spent the fall in the book of Revelation, which I found a lot of fun. Hopefully you didn't mind hearing about sexual immorality every other week. In that book, we see Jesus displayed as both king, who both has and has not yet taken on his crown, because we do see images of him in the future in that book. And we're going through Romans quickly, and here's why: there's a lot to grasp us about every three verses. Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, who was a physician who then uh, since the call into the ministry and became a phenomenal preacher, uh, took nine years to go through the book of Romans because there's so much in the text. But if we take that long, not only will most of you miss some Sundays here and there, and then just be really bummed out, but we miss the sequential, I don't know why you're laughing, we miss the sequential argument that Paul's making. This is the longest sustained argument in in the New Testament about who Jesus is, what the world is actually like. Chapters five through eight that we're looking at most of this morning describe life in the spirit. And so I'm overwhelmed with the text, but I'm committed to preaching it this way because we can be grasped by the argument Paul's making, even as we could also unpack maybe two verses at a time. And that would be another way to study it. I've chosen this way. and So Paul encourages us to walk in life. And when Paul asks these rhetorical questions, it's actually because he's being accused. This is not the first time in the letter. People are saying, you preach about Jesus' work so strongly, it sounds like you think we can just live however we want. And in my opinion, most great preachers have been accused of this. And I wonder if someone could see your faith, whether articulated with words or how it moves your heart, would they be tempted to believe that you're so moved by what Jesus did that you think that's almost all that matters to a life of faith? Martin Luther pushed on this really hard. He defined growing up in faith what the ESV calls sanctification. He said, sanctification, maturity in faith is just getting used to your justification. Meaning, when you know what Jesus did for you, everything else flows out of that. Our tradition has a longer definition of sanctification because we have opportunities daily to present ourselves to Christ and become better worshipers of Him and better neighbors where we find ourselves. But, Paul was accused of this regularly because he was so moved by God's love evidenced in the work of Christ. And I wonder if you could see my faith, whatever that means in text or simply what it looks like in my mind and emotions, would you be tempted to believe that I think that's almost all that matters? I hope so. Charles Spurgeon was accused of this. Many other preachers are accused of it because the work of Christ is so cataclysmically world and cosmic and life changing. And then Paul immediately begins talking about self sacrifice, and this is something that I want us to get right. I want us to understand that Paul is presenting a binary option when he describes life in the spirit. Software engineers understood that immediately. For years when people would say binary I'd literally like write to my side like what does that mean again? question mark? Like I know the word but I have to think about it. Many of you don't. That's great. Here's what it means. It's either a 1 or a 0. When he describes life and death. When he describes life in the spirit, Or the alternative He's saying there are but two options In this life As a human being And so when he describes Self-sacrifice which To those considering the Christian faith And I know there are some in the room It can sound um, harsh Paul doesn't mean it that way Paul is explaining That there is a flourishing Life available And there's death And that's it Those are the options. And he's not talking about your heart ceasing to beat at the end of your life. He's talking about your daily life. You have the opportunity to live a life of life or a life of death to yourself and others. There's a word for life that talks about the human body and it continuing to function. That's not the word he's using. He's using the word, I'm going to say flourishing or abundant or to use Jesus' language, kingdom life. And that creates a tension, right? Because there is still sin. There is still disease and death. We're still tempted to sin. And friends, Romans 6 and Romans 7 will describe that tension better than existentialism, any philosophy or religion or especially self-help book that we could ever get our hands on. I'm not saying those things are worthless, but I am saying this explains the foundation of of the tension that every human lives in. And especially for followers of Christ, who have seen such light, such potential for the flourishing of ourselves and neighbors, and yet who are still so tempted to sin. I love that at the end of the section, I'm preaching mostly on uh, chapter six, verses one one through 14. Right now, I love that in verse 11, Paul says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus. The word consider there, I think, has a great deal of impact, and yet we don't think of it as an impactful word. And now my brain's like, you need to come up with an impactful word on the spot, and I'm not going to try and do that. But if the gospel is true, then the opportunity to consider it with regularity is an incredible grace and a gift to us. verses 7 through 11 are almost worship even as they describe death to self. Death to self is a very important concept in Christianity because it is the only way we will actually glorify God. It is the only way we can actually become of service to our neighbors and it is the only way that we can become the f- most full version of the imago Dei, the image of God in us. It is not a punishment. It is not that we might merit favor with God. It is the opportunity in a world of death to still live a life of life. Paul describes it this way. Meg didn't read this on purpose. I'm gonna read it now. For in verse five, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Going back to verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. I know I read that fast. We might walk in the newness of life. That's why he did what he did. How? Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. What does that mean? It means we pay, t- we consider, verse 11, what is the life of life available to us? We reset ourselves to the newness of life as best we can. Oh, I thought we were going to, that's all right. Tim Keller calls the gospel a living argument. So that voice that would teach us to, we're too tired to love well, Or we're too angry or ashamed. There's been too many miscommunications and we're resentful. But Christ freed us from that into righteousness. I took a pastor's retreat this week and we all spent time exploring sections of Romans 8. We're going to skip Romans 8 next week and we're going to come back to it for Advent and that part of Romans we're going to go through slowly because friends there are so many good promises in Romans 8. And as we were talking about it, one of the the pastors was saying that the purpose of Christ's work was that we might live righteous lives. And we all kind of wrestled with that. We all get semantic with words. And I was like, it was an overflow of his love, first of all. But then yes, to both give us his righteousness, in terms of our standing with God, and then lead us into his righteousness in the way that we live. Which means following him out of an obedience of the heart. And the reality is we will either be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Paul's kind of circling argument as he makes his argument from uh, Romans 1 through the end of chapter 11, right here in the middle of it, life in the spirit is recognizing and then living in light of the fact that you will either be a slave to sin We're slave to righteousness. If those are our options, we choose life and not death. We choose righteousness and not sin. I love when he says obedient from the heart. In some ways, I think that's a terrific summary of a follower of Christ who has been so gripped by what God did to rescue us that we're obedient not to gain his favor. Not because it's the right thing to do, though we're grateful it's the right thing to do but because we have been moved mind, soul, body, and spirit by what he did. This is verse 17 of chapter 6. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching of which you were committed. Some of you are very familiar with the end of chapter 6. When Paul says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get, good news, leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Sanctification means maturity and growth in the Christian life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When I was growing up, there were two big ways of sharing the gospel with people that I remember. One was called Evangelism Explosion. I said Grace Explosion in the first service. I was like, that's not right, and I corrected myself. Grace Explosion, it's a very odd word picture. Evangelism Explosion, which was a five-step process for walking someone through the reality of sin in their life and salvation in Jesus. The other one, the one that you're perhaps more familiar with, is called Romans Road. And the second step of Romans Road uses chapter six, verse 23. And that's fine, but that's not the scope of the passage. And by the way, those ways don't actually work very much anymore because our culture doesn't believe that we live in a world racked with sin and swept over by it. So instead we have a better alternative than tactics when we have a friend who's not a follower of Christ and that better way is friendship and giving an account of the hope that is in us through our work through our friendship with them through the problematic ways we parent our children and then get to repent to them the good ways the way we interact with our parents etc the reason i point this out is not because there's a problem with roman's road but because if we're thinking of this in terms of roman's road am i saying that right you know how when you say a word over and over you're like am i saying this right anymore is it inevitable or inevitable Anyway, listen again to verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, and I know you don't want to be a slave, but it's a binary option. You're either a slave to yourself or to God. I don't know about you. I don't want to be a slave to myself. So we get to walk in life and righteousness for God's glory. I didn't have Meg read chapter, uh, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 7 because Paul is making an analogy to someone who dies and their spouse can be married to another and he's expecting them to remember all of the Old Testament teachings on marriage and he's just making an analogy and it would sound very challenging to you. You can read it, but Paul's not attempting to talk about marriage and divorce so much as he's making an analogy that we know one of the ways that we're set free from a law is if we die. It no longer applies, right? There's a lot to say about marriage and other passages. Paul's making an example with shared knowledge of the congregation even though he only knew 23 of them not all of them, that's from chapters 15 and 16, they would have understood the law doesn't apply anymore. Verses four through six is another description of God's pursuing love. I use that phrase a lot because it's in the scriptures a lot. I really like preaching on practical texts, but they're only as helpful as our foundation, friends. And so we need to be gripped by and wrestle with These words that don't sound like how we talk today but are the foundation of who Jesus is and therefore of our faith. Listen again to verses four through six. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. God saving us for righteousness is for his glory. That's why he saved you. He did it as an overflow of love he did not do it so that you would be comforted by heaven, though that is a sweet gift of the Holy Spirit. He did it so that we might worship and honor him, love neighbor, and then grow up ourselves. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work and our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we... Serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The new way of the Spirit is a constant awareness that we were saved, that we've been given new life. This is why you pray in the mornings. That's called an ordinary means of grace. And you're asking implicitly or explicitly to be gripped by the fact that you were saved. And you know that that makes a difference. This is why we sing, which is an ordinary means of grace. This is why we pause and consider the, the spoken and written and preached on word of Christ because it's an ordinary means of taking that in so that we might live by it. When we receive the sacrament on the first Sunday of the month, that's an extraordinary means of grace. It has more power. Though it is not alone, it has more power than the ordinary means of grace. The new way of the Spirit is a constant awareness that we were saved. And then an embracing of that as we go about our workplace lives and the neighborhoods we find ourselves in and the families that God has so curiously blessed us with. And this is to enjoy our freedom. Verses 7 through 12 of of chapter 7 say that the law is good, but without justification by faith, In a world full of sin, the law would actually increase our tendency to sin. My favorite example of the law in action in a mundane way are the hot hot tub rules at the YMCA. You guys remember them? So you cannot swim to the bottom of the hot tub. You know why? Because your hair will get caught in the drain. You cannot shave in the hot tub because of the risk of blood-borne pathogens All of you who are parents or teachers know that all these rules exist because someone broke them. You imagine being that employee and someone comes down you come down and someone's shaving or shaving in the hot tub and you're like, you can't you can't have glass in the hot tub. There are eleven of them, I can only remember three or four at a time. And I'm making a silly analogy, but Paul's point is when we see a list of how to live wisely and well in the world. Without faith in Jesus, what naturally happens because of the world and our flesh, and I'll define the flesh in just a minute, we're now tempted to do that. I could shave in the hot tub. That would be interesting. I should have brought a beer with me. That would make it even more relaxing. I should swim down to the bottom and see if my hair's long enough to get caught in the drain. More profoundly, when we're told to worship God and him alone, when we're told to keep ourselves from idols, when we're told to carry his name with honor, take one day off in seven, honor our father and mother, not murder, keep the sexual ethic of the scriptures, not lie or covet. Thank you. Or steal. That's an interesting one because when I was younger, I was tempted to theft. It's another story for another time. It's not in my notes. I don't want to be flippant about it. Paul's point is if we see a list like that which is a description of the flourishing life available to humans but we don't have the justification by faith that Jesus gives us then that list is suddenly we're even more tempted than we would be otherwise. And then verses 15 through 20 describe in my opinion the reality of the human condition period but also especially for Christians And I think it's more true to life and more exquisitely the way we experience life than anything I've ever read. For I do not understand my own actions, written verse 15. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I read that fast because Meg read it slow. I want you to notice the tongue twister nature of it. Paul is attempting to both understand and explain to the Roman Christians the reality of the tension of our freedom in the midst of a world that's still in bondage. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your body houses the Holy Spirit. And the deepest part about you is the new heart that Jesus gave when we trusted him by faith. But we still have tendencies to sin that Paul is here calling our flesh. And so there's this internal argument. There's this almost constant tension because the world has not yet been made new, but our hearts have been made new. And the good news that's wrapped up in this is that even as our bodies get creakier, our flesh is getting less and less, and our body is growing more and more whole. Our body, the way Paul defines it. Our flesh, the way Paul defines it. We are becoming more mature in love of God and neighbor because the deepest thing about a follower of Christ is they have been given a new heart. Does that mean we're not still tempted? By no means. And if you're considering the gospel of Jesus, that is the offer. It is a new heart, an entire new set of motivations, an entire new foundation TV, I think, gets at this better than philosophy or even religion, but one of the reasons that philosophy and religion, be it ancestor, traditional, modern, etc., wrestles with the question even our good deeds can become narcissistic and selfish so quickly, right? If not immediately. This is what Christ frees us from and into, even good deeds that we would do for manipulative reasons or selfish reasons. If the foundation is Christ, we are freed from that, which is the death of worship to self. And then I love Paul's answer. I love his question and his answer, and it might sound harsh to you, but remember he's describing two options and there are not three. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Isn't that true to life? Don't let the language confuse you. You have this moment where you're motivated by love for God to treat a neighbor well. Doesn't something get in the way all the time? So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. When I prayed for the kids, I prayed for their hands and ours, their eyes and ours, their words and ours. That's what Paul's talking about when he says members. It's part of the reason I pray so often that we would use our words like kingdom dwellers. That with our eyes and imagination and our hands and our gifts, literally our gifts of finance and our gifts, we would use them the way that Christ's followers do. It's part of the reason I like the ESV better than the NIV. It is true that those things are in us, but Paul's being more specific, which is why the ESV describes it in my members. Some amount of my hands are filled with the Holy Spirit and some amount is still afflicted by what Paul calls the flesh which is tempted to harm instead of love. But then what does he do with the tension? Wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind but with my flesh my flesh I serve the spirit. He's still remembering the tension, but now we're free to love God and neighbor. Those morals don't tend to tempt us to sin because we're not looking to them to save us. We're following them because of what has been done for us. We embrace the living argument of the gospel against our own internal critic, against our temptations to life and violence and unhealth and narcissism. See, so, no, it's not who I really am. I'm a child of God. Jesus died for me. And I can live in the newness of life today even though I'm tempted to live a life of death. That is the offer of the gospel and it is the only thing with the power to free us from the alternative. Would you pray with me? God, we praise and thank you for what you did. Jesus, we praise and thank you that you are even now empowering us to live lives of justice and love and peace and good work to glorify you and to bless our neighbors. Holy Spirit, we are so thankful that our future in you is secure. We believe all of this. Help our unbelief. Amen.